I will say I've never been to an AFL-CIO convention, but it feels pretty diverse. This is like the way that I want to see labor conferences look, right? And so for me, not only the people who are participating, but the folks on the stage, I honestly can't believe the lineup today. And Stacey Abrams, Fatima Goss-Graves, Melissa Harris-Perry, and the President of the United States. Like, you can't really get much better than that. My grandfather taught me uh, all-time labor Palmer in New York City always used to talk about being on seven strikes in his lifetime. And each one of those strikes, he told me, was because of progress. And he says, you can't stop progress. I took that lesson from him in my own career. You can't stop progress. You can't stop change. And that union steward went down and started talking to those guys, and he gave them a talk that changed everything. If this was your, your sister, your daughter, your cousin, auntie, your mom, you wouldn't want them to have a, to be out here working and to be treated the way that this woman has been treated. One of the other things that really separates us from other insurance companies is as a union company, we understand work stoppages, we understand layoffs and strikes, and so every one of our policies is protected with a strike waiver and a layoff waiver. If you're on strike for up to a year, we waive your premiums and there is never any payback because you're off work. Why would we expect you to be able to pay? Welcome back to the Labor Radio Podcast Daily, a special edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. This is our final edition from the AFL-CIO Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, Patrick Dixon talks with Will Empower Cherie Davis Faulkner and Lane Windham about the AFL-CIO convention's diversity as well as how it has addressed many women's issues. Longtime labor talk show host Rick Smith dropped by the Labor Radio Podcast Network studio yesterday, and we prevailed on him to interview James Hart, president of the AFL-CIO's Metal Trades Department. President Hart talked with Rick about change and his views on President Biden. Next, I talked with Erica Stewart about her courageous struggle and triumph as a young black woman in the Boilermakers Union, who became the first female African-American international rep in the union's history. I also talked with American Income Life's Susan Foldauer about AIL's pro-labor policies and the history of the company's working class consciousness. We wrap up today's show with an audio postcard from yesterday's rally by hundreds of convention delegates supporting the fight for a contract by the Philadelphia Museum of Art Union. Led by AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler, Secretary-Treasurer Fred Redmond, and AFSCME President Lee Saunders. Here's today's show. Would you mind telling us what, what are some of the things that have st stuck out to you most about this convention? Honestly, the number of sessions that are speaking directly to women's issues. I've been surprised to see the gender-based violence in the workplace conversation happening here. 
I feel like that's really been happening at a global level, but we don't talk about it in those terms here. Conversations around like childcare and the kinds of infrastructure support that all workers need and not just framing it as a woman's issue, but framing it as an issue for everybody. And honestly, I will say I've never been to an AFL-CIO convention, but it feels pretty diverse. This is like the way that I want to see labor conferences look, right? And so for me, not only the people who are participating, but the folks on the stage. I honestly can't believe the lineup today. And Stacey Abrams, Fatima Goss-Graves, Melissa Harris-Perry, and the President of the United States. Like, you can't really get much better than that. So I'm feeling pretty good about that in terms of representation, but also in terms of messaging. So I've been to many AFL-CIO conventions. I've been coming to conventions since, gosh, 1999. <laughs> and Cherie is right. This is definitely more diverse than we've seen other years. There's also a heavier focus on there's more young people. There's more focus on women and women, not just in the sessions that focus on women, but on throughout. So, for instance, during the organizing session yesterday where we had workers from all different kinds of organizing campaigns, young people and women and people of color were featured and it was incredibly energetic. And I definitely think that Liz Schuler is showing her leadership and showing her priorities for the movement. And it's exciting, I'd say. Yeah. What do you think those priorities are? What should people know about her leadership? I think that her leadership is inclusive, that she is bringing in a wide group of people and that she is inspirational and is inspiring people to change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also feel like the thing that I appreciated is that she speaks explicitly about the fact that her leadership style is different and that she had to travel a different pathway to get here. And now that she's here, she's going to use the role to really transform the movement. And to me, people don't oftentimes, especially non-traditional leaders, talk explicitly about having a different leadership practice. And so I think it's important that she's saying that out loud so that other people can hear that stepping into these leadership roles, it's important to bring your whole selves. It's important to lead in the ways that are in alignment with your values and not to just copy the people before you. And I, the other thing that I've really appreciated is there, there's so many of the kind of traditional white guy leaders here who are right here with women of color leaders lifting them up and being like real allies. Like you can see folks introducing people, making sure they're making connections. If there's their first convention, making sure that they know who they need to talk to. And to me, that kind of leadership development that's happening, that's not only cross-racial, like multiracial and also across gender and gender expression, that's really what we're going to have to have in order to really have the diverse and transformational leadership that we're looking for in the labor movement. I hear a lot of talks and people talk about things that could take place in Congress or in state law, but that always seems to be an obstacle. Is there some sort of actionable way in which, I don't know, unions or other organizations can put into practice these types of exciting ideas that you've discussed? Sheree and I run a program called Will Empower, which stands for Women Innovating Labor Leadership. We have a broad definition of women and we have a broad definition of labor. And we focus on building that next generation of labor leaders through cohorts, apprenticeships, fellowships, 
and events. And so absolutely, I think that Will Empower can certainly be part of that. What would you add, Cherie? I wouldn't add anything. Will Empower wants to be a part of that. And I think the combination of being able to bring folks into this network and elaborate on the importance of leadership as a practice that we can lead in all these different spaces. But the other piece of it is being able to get out there. Lane writes wonderful books, so we get those books in people's hands so people understand that some of the stories that we know about labor are limited and that we need to be more expansive in the ways that we're looking at labor and labor history. But also being able to do workshops with many labor unions and other worker justice organizations so that we're spreading the message. You, too, should lead in labor. Okay, thanks, Patrick. We're here with James Hart, president of the Metal Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. James, how are you, man? Okay, Rick. How are you doing? I am fantastic. Good to see you here. Hey, it's great to be amongst our brothers and sisters in labor. It's good to get out amongst people again, get out of the pandemic, all of that. What pandemic? <laughs> what pandemic? It's nothing but love and activity, and it's just an amazing time for us. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I've been walking through the hall here, and some of the trades toys that they now have. Did you see the bricklayers? They had that mule. You know, I would have been a bricklayer. And I saw that robot. It's just mind-boggling how labor meets the challenge. Time immemorial. It doesn't matter what the challenge is. Labor's there to meet it. It steps up and is always cutting edge. What it says to me is that technology looking to the future. Labor's always been painted kind of as a Luddite. We don't want to advance with the times. It shows me that, no, we're actually doing that. My grandfather, plumber in New York City, always used to talk about being on seven strikes in his lifetime. And each one of those strikes, he told me, was because of progress. And he says, you can't stop progress. I took that lesson from him in my own career. You can't stop progress. You can't stop change. You can't stop good change. And you have to move forward, you have to advance, and you have to stand up in front and lead because the workers of America depend on us. We're the ones that will decide the ultimate fate of all workers and generations no. to come. No, I think you hit the key there, yeah. though. Good change. There's change for change's sake. There's oh, yeah. change for exploitive sake. And there's change for good. You know, our jobs may not be as labor-intensive, but they'll be that much more stressful. Okay, we might not be as hands-on as we used to be, okay, and we may be remote, and that's all going to bring all new challenges that labor has to step up and meet and confront and make sure that the American workforce is prepared for. If you talked about the pandemic has brought upon change that maybe was 20 years down the road, is expedited, it brought it forward, and I think we've handled it fabulously. I, I look at some of the changes and some of the adaptations, and you go, we rose to the occasion, and now that's going to help people be more productive. It's going to help firms do a little bit better. But in the end of this, the workers still have to do better as well. This can't be a moment in history like a lot of industrial changes and a lot of advancements where the handful at the top reap all the rewards and the people who were left behind are left behind. Well, we're going to be graced here today by the president of the United States. And I don't know that any president has understood the plight of the working man better than President Biden since FDR. Yeah. Okay, and the truth of the matter is his message resonates. The more they criticize him, the more they try to knock him down, what does that tell me? It tells me that they're hearing him and they're listening and he's getting through. And people are seeing those economic gains in the pocket. And we're going to get past inflation. We're going to do a good progressive policy. We've got a president that gets it. He's surrounded by a staff that gets it. 
between our offshore wind initiatives, the infrastructure plan. When you start to look at all the initiatives that this president has brought forth in 18 months, the future is bright. We just have to be strong enough to keep our eye on the prize. Yeah, now as head of the Metal Trades Department of the AFL, you got to be looking to the future with the infrastructure bill. You got to be looking to the future of your industry with a really positive light given the fact that you've got historic investments coming down the road. We're going to start doing some rebuilding of the country that's been needed for so long. It went through four years of the last guy with every week being infrastructure week. And it was a lot of a lot of PR campaign, not much actual work. This is going to be this going to be a good thing for the country, I think. Listen, the pandemic exacerbated a lot of problems, right? The supply chain crisis being front and forefront. And the Metal Trades Department now is committed to building hundreds of ships and developing the marine highway, not just the coastal waters, but all the inland waterways. Shouldn't just be fancy restaurants. They should be creating good paying jobs with health care and pensions, okay, receiving goods, moving goods all through the Great Lakes, up and down the bayous. We should be moving our minerals from Montana and the Dakotas right down to the East Coast, building ships, rebuilding the domestic ship industry. That's going to be our contribution to bringing back the American workforce and making the transition to good paying jobs again. James, I appreciate you taking some time Rick, for hey, us. thanks for Good talking with you, man. I appreciate it. Good Stay stuff. well. Jim Hart, the president of the Metal Trades Department there of the FFL-CIO. My name is Erica Stewart. I am a proud member of the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers Union. I am a proud member of 25 years. I started off as a, a union steward. I was elected as the president of my local, served two terms, as well as now, as of 2017, I was appointed the very first black female international rep. And as of 2018, I was appointed the very first national women's in trades coordinator for the Boilermakers. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's such an honor. You got, there's a bunch of firsts in there. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, how, how you came to the union and the trades are notoriously not friendly places, A, for women, for young folks, and for black folks. And you got all of that going. I have to commend the fact that my Boilermakers Union is definitely implementing a change. The history of the Boilermakers is truly, it's rough. It's a tough thing because women weren't allowed to even be a part of the union. Um, it was a struggle to even become members and nevertheless to be women and to be people of color all together. And if they were, once they were allowed to be a part of the unions, they would have to have um, separate union meetings. Um, they weren't allowed to be in the regular union halls. Uh, the, the word that occurs to me is racist, but maybe it's too strong. You tell me. Well, it is what it is. It's racist. Right? I mean, a little bit more about me. I'm Please. from Mobile, Alabama. There you go. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. However, but I started off my, my journey working in Mississippi. So, Alabama, Mississippi, believe it or not, 2022, not a lot has changed. So, I would commute 45 minutes every day to go to the shipyard. I started off my apprenticeship program in 1997. Of course, again, not much has changed. It's Mississippi. And being a black woman, that mm -hmm. I am proud black woman and cute at that, I think. Yes, anyway, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, I wasn't accepted really. I wasn't accepted with open arms. Being a black woman in uh, this male-dominated industry, um, there was a, some people there that really didn't think it was a place for a woman, especially a black woman. I was not really given an opportunity like some of my other members of my training class that received them. Um, I would ask questions and I would be overlooked. It was really tough. I was belittled. I was called ugly names. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. A black girl, mm -hmm. whatever. You name it. You fill in the blanks. It was tough. And I had this really tough um, 
foreman that was really, he was very determined that he didn't want to give me an opportunity. He pretty much had a bet going on about how long I was going to last. Oh, wow. And he told the guys, I was the only female in that crew, he told the guys that um, if they were even caught trying to help me, that he was going to write them up. And if, of course, if you receive three write-ups, you will be terminated. And so he would threaten the other guys in, the, in my crew because he didn't want them to to help me. And, uh, and now I'm like, man, I'm a military vet. I, you know, I, I didn't serve this country. You mean to tell me I can't come here and build ships? I didn't want them to do the work for me. I just want to learn how to properly do it safe so that I can return home to my three babies that were depending on that check every week. I, I just wanted a chance, and he made it so difficult. Mm. He would put me way off, away from everybody else, so that I couldn't ask for help. He would put me in places that he knew that I couldn't do the job, uh, dark spaces where I didn't get proper lighting, wasn't proper ventilation. It, it was tough. It was tough. So how I got to the union was I I asked for a union steward. There you go. The union steward came out to represent me. He needed a witness. The guys were so afraid. No one stepped up and spoke on my behalf to say what they had witnessed. Really? Him These are the people that you've been working side by side yes, with? Yes, they were afraid. These guys were like, a lot of other black guys that were working in the crew were like, no. There were some white guys that worked there too, but the guys were afraid. Again, the only woman in the crew, no one really wanted to step up to help me. So the without having a witness, it was very hard for the union steward to actually prove right. that my case actually had any merit. Right. So with that being said, it, it went away. And I continued, and I would come in to work, and I would just be in tears, and I was very afraid. So if you're working and you're nervous, and it's a very dangerous job, you're bound to get hurt. So I ended up getting something in my eye, mm. and I had to go to the hospital. They have a hospital there on, on site. And one of the nurses there, again, said, listen, I know you asked for a union steward, but you need to ask for another union And I'm like, what are they going to be able to do? Because no one wants to be a witness for me. And on this particular time when I asked for a union steward, we went back. And that union steward went down and started talking to those guys. And he gave them a talk that changed everything. If this was your, your sister, your daughter, your cousin, auntie, your mom, you wouldn't want them to, have a, to be out here working and to be treated the way that this woman has been treated. And from that talk that union steward gave the crew of men, I had maybe about four people to come up and say to me, I apologize, I'm sorry. I will tell the story. I'm, the guy said, I'm a first-class welder, and one thing he can't do is take away the fact that I know my job. I will actually be a witness to the verbal abuse. And with him, the lack of training you, I will speak on that because I can only speak on the truth. Mm -hmm. And that changed the game for me. And so when that, with those guys actually speaking up being a witness, we won the case, and that foreman was reprimanded for that. So some of the other women that were in the shipyard that were dealing with a similar situation began to secretly come to me and ask me, what did you do? And you were so brave because they were afraid to speak up. Because once you get acknowledged and you're known as a tattletale, the snitch, you begin to be retaliated on because uh, the word gets around. It travels. With me speaking up and getting the union steward to representing me, to represent me and to win that case, it changed the game because now women were coming to me. And I started walking with my chest out a little bit like, you know what, girl, you don't have to take that. And um, it, it, it changed everything for me. Was it all good days? Heck no. I still have to deal with the fact it's Mississippi. And then I was known as the lady who told on a foreman. So I had to deal with nasty notes and I had to deal with um, 
coming back to my work area, getting little noose tied with ropes oh, in my geez. work area, riding uh, Black Girl Go Home. Mm. I dealt with that, but I continue, I knew that the fight wasn't just about me. It was about my sisters. It was about my, the members that didn't deserve that because we were there to provide for our families just like the white people. Don't treat me like this because I'm a black person. Then I'm a black woman. I, I, I deserve to eat. I deserve to get the wages. I deserve this opportunity to provide for my family as well. My name is Susan Foldauer. I am from Indianapolis, Indiana. I have been a union member with OPEIU Local 277 for about 37 years now, and I'm with American Income Life Insurance Company. So tell us about American Income Life. What is it? So American Income Life is a traditional life insurance company. We very proudly were the first insurance company recognized under the union label and we are still very proudly a 100% wall-to-wall union insurance company. We work in not only the U.S. but across Canada and in New Zealand as well. We have been connecting with labor and working families for over 65 years now. We work very closely with, with labor. We bring the voice of reason to the table for worker issues. Most recently, we took the lead as a business to support the PRO Act across the country. One of the other things that really separates us from other insurance companies is as a union company, we understand work stoppages, we understand layoffs and strikes, and so every one of our policies is protected with a strike waiver and a layoff waiver. If you're on strike for up to a year, we waive your premiums and there is never any payback because you're off work. Why would we expect you to be able to pay you know, your insurance premium? For a layoff, we waive the premiums for up to three months. Again, we understand that that's the last thing that a member is going to pay, but it's an important piece in their overall protection. It comes from our founder, Bernard Rappaport, who founded the company in 1959, and it grew into the form that it is now, about 1971. And he was raised by socialist parents who escaped Russia, came to this country, and really instilled a sense of, of social consciousness, social awareness for the working class. And he never forgot where he came from. Um, and he found that the real niche for our company was with working families because insurance companies overall weren't interested in providing a $500 life insurance benefit you know, or a $1,000 life insurance benefit. They wanted the mega insurance benefits. And using his social awareness and consciousness, um, we have always, to this day, stood with, with working families. We lobby, we stand on picket lines, we have food banks all across three countries that we support and that we create in our own offices so that when there is a strike, when there is a family in need, there's no red tape. Please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Ask Me's International President, Lee Saunders. Yeah. 
historic AFSCME PMA DC-47 worker who two years ago voted to form the country's first wall-to-wall -wall museum union.
it for today's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Daily, a special edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. As I mentioned at the top, this is our last report from the AFL-CIO convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And on behalf of the entire Labor Radio Podcast Network team, we'd like to thank American Income Life for so generously sharing their booth and hosting us at the convention. We absolutely could not have done it without that support. Susan Fuldauer and Laura Pelletier could not have been more gracious hosts. Thanks so much to them and to everybody at American Income Life. Be sure to stay tuned for our next report as we travel to the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. Remember, you'll find all the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Daily was edited by Mel Smith, Patrick Dixon, and Evan Papp. I produced the show. Our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. A very special thanks to Mel Smith for doing that as well. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For the Labor Radio Podcast Daily, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.